Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. Welcome to the Fierce Fiduciary Podcast, Episode 3. Just as a reminder, this podcast is for educational purposes only. Nothing should be considered personalized advice. You should consult your advisor for anything specific to you. I'm Brian Beasley, and with us is my partner, Dan Albert. Good morning, Dan. Good morning, Brian. The Great Depression was the worst economic downturn in the history of the industrialized world, lasting from 1929 to 1939. It began after the stock market crash of 1929, which sent Wall Street into a panic and wiped out millions of investors. Over the next several years, consumer spending and investment dropped, causing steep declines in industrial output and employment as failing companies laid off workers. By 1933, when the Great Depression reached its lowest point, some 15 million Americans were unemployed and nearly half the country's banks had failed. That's a excerpt from topic on the Great Depression history on history.com. And today we're going to discuss that great crash of 1929. There's a book here that we're going to use as our source material called The Great Crash 1929, written in 1955, actually, by a man named John Kenneth Galbraith. He went by Ken Galbraith. He was a Canadian-American professor, spent over 50 years at Harvard University, and uh, at the time of this reprint in the 90s, he was the Paul M. Warburg Professor of Economics Emeritus at Harvard. He has written over 30 books, and this one in particular fascinating because since 1955, the book has never been out of print. So hopefully we've got some good stuff here on the beginning of that Great Depression, that 1929 crash. And he starts here, and I'm going to get some excerpts here, but uh, we're, we're near the beginning of the book. Quote, No Congress of the United States ever assembled on surveying the State of the Union has met with a more pleasing prospect than that which appears at the present time. The main source of these unexampled blessings lies in the integrity and character of the American people. And this is a speech in December of 1928 when President Coolidge sent his last message as a State of the Union um, to the reconvening Congress. And um, you know what he's talking about is how great things have been going. And uh, back to the book here, the 20s in America were a very good time, the 1920s. Production and employment were high and rising. Although many people were still very poor, more people were comfortably well-off, well-to-do, or rich than ever before. Business earnings were rising rapidly, and it was a good time to be in business. One thing in the 20s should have been visible even to President Coolidge. It concerned the American people of whose character he'd spoken so well. Along with the sterling qualities he praised, they were also displaying an inordinate desire to get rich quickly with a minimum of physical effort. And this is really true. I mean, what was going on is this attitude of get rich quick. I mean, everything was easy in the 1920s for people who had money and for people who were starting businesses or investing. I mean, everything seemed to be going up. Um, there's a there's a 
I'm skipping over some stuff here, but there was a, a, a land bubble. You get these people that have lots and lots of money and they get to a point where they're, they're certainly well off and now they have, they have to come up with a, something to do with their money. And uh, one of the examples that he cites in here is this, uh, this story of this uh, land bubble where people were investing in land in Florida in the mid-1920s, which completely got insane and uh, and completely blew up. This is all before 1928, 29, and all the stock market stuff was happening. You had this other bubble, and uh, and it burst. And so, a lot of this is uh, this easy time came from uh, just easy money was a component of that, where people could borrow money very easily, and the Federal Reserve was lending money pretty well. So, it says here, the funds that the Federal Reserve made available were either invested in common stocks, or and more important, they became available to help finance the purchase of common stocks by others. So what they're talking about here is you have all this, in, in a time when you had all this easy money, when everything's going great in the 20s, people could actually borrow money from one place and then in turn lend it out to someone else to then speculate on on stock market. Well, that sounds like the Federal Reserve is doing, is not acting like, you and I know it today. It sounds like the Federal Reserve, uh, in its infancy, had different objectives when they were uh, using their monetary policy. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 in a way, they might have unknowingly even been throwing fuel on the fire. Sure. And making things worse. But everything was good. So, you know, what could possibly go wrong? Right, right. As you were reading those initial pack- passages, I was thinking about. Uh, the late 90s with the run-up of the tech stocks, and I was also thinking about the real estate bubble as it was developing in the mid-2000s, and it's just uh, the parallels, I guess, between what was happening in the 1920s and our own recent history through our own careers. And uh, you know, history does have a tendency of repeating itself yeah, and the longer these things go, the more insane they can get. You know, because because after a while, people think, "Oh, look, something's changed. It's been so long since anything bad has happened. What could possibly go wrong now? Look, this time it's different." And we hear that a lot. You read that a lot. So back to the book here. It says, "Until the beginning of 1928, even a man of conservative mind could believe that the prices of common stock were catching up with the increase in corporation earnings." Early in 1928, the nature of the boom changed. The mass escape into make-believe, so much a part of the true speculative orgy, started in earnest. So this is 1928. It's getting ready to get really insane. So I, I also, let me skip over a little bit. You know, Hoover was elected in a landslide in 1928, and uh, this is important. He was very, very ambitious and popular, very well-connected in, in Washington, and he had actually been the Commerce Secretary under Calvin Coolidge and, uh, and, and even before that. So he, and he'd worked for different parties, so he was an immensely popular guy. He, he did get finally elected as president, and, uh, uh, and it's interesting that he may have been part of that speculative optimism that was going on, and people wanted to keep the party going. Coolidge had already had two terms, so they had to uh, elect someone else. But um, but Hoover was from the same party, and it, it seems like everybody wanted to keep things 
keep things going. So back to the book in 1928. Over the whole year of 1928, the Times Industrials average gained 86 points. So folks, that's a 35% return. That's bigger than the 2019 increase. That's a huge year for the stock market, even after the roaring 20s. Here you have in the 1928 year was, again, another great year in the stock market. But there was still another and even more significant index of what was happening in the market. And that was the phenomenal increase in trading on margin. So trading on margin, for those of you who don't know, that's when you are literally borrowing money from someone in order to, uh, to buy stock. So you don't have all the money. You want to buy 100 shares of stock. You can only afford 50. You can borrow some money and buy that 100 shares. Um, now, that works great if, mark, if stocks are going up because your stock might be going up faster than the interest you're paying on that, on that loan. But uh, it doesn't necessarily last you know, forever. And we're going to see that here later on. People were swarming to buy stocks on margin. In other words, to have the increase in price without the cost of ownership, the cost was being assumed in the first instance by the New York banks, but they in turn were rapidly becoming the agents for lenders the country over and even the world around. There is no mystery as to why so many wished to lend so much in New York. One of the paradoxes of speculation in securities is that the loans that underwrite it are among the safest of all investments. They are protected by the stocks which are, under all ordinary circumstances, are instantly saleable and by a cash margin as well. So that means they have a they have some extra collateral. So you can't borrow, like on a house, you can borrow 80% of the value. And when you're buying on margin, you can't buy that much. There's a lot more cushion in a stock loan. Um, so they were deemed to be really safe loans. These people who were making these loans to these speculators were getting that. Back to the book. The money, as noted, can be retrieved on demand. At the beginning of 1928, this admirably liquid and exceptionally secure outlet for non-risk capital wow, was paying around 5%. While 5% it, it is an excellent gilt-edged return, the rate rose steadily through 1928, and during the last week of the year, it reached 12%. This was still with complete safety, it says here. In Montreal, London, Shanghai, and Hong Kong, there was talk of these rates. Everywhere, men of means told themselves that 12% was 12%. A great river of gold to converge began to converge on Wall Street, all of it to help Americans hold common stock on margin. There were still better ways of making money. In principle, New York banks could borrow money from the Federal Reserve for 5% and re-lend it in the call market, the margin market, for 12%. So the banks are making 7% for free. Wow. In practice, they did. This was possibly the most profitable arbitrage operation of all time. Purely in retrospect, it, skipping ahead here, Purely in retrospect, it is easy to see how 1929 was destined to be a year to remember. It was simply that a roaring boom was in progress in the stock market, and like all booms, it had to end. On the 1st of January, 1929, it was as a simple matter of probability. When prices stopped rising, 
then ownership on margin would become meaningless and everyone would want to sell. The market wouldn't level out. It would fall precipitously. So the bottom line is if you're, you're buying all these stocks on margin, you've got all this leverage and you're buying, uh, buying stock with money you don't have and you owe money on this, everything's great as long as the music keeps playing and the party keeps continuing and stocks keep rising. But what, what people knew and what people assumed is it was just a matter of time that eventually it was going to end. And it, when you've got that much leverage, and when I say leverage, that means just people operating on borrowed money, that's leverage. When you have that kind of leverage in there, it's, it's not going to end pretty. And, uh, and that's what he's talking about right here. So this is going on, and the, four, the, the, uh, the Fed begins to start saying, hey, maybe we don't want to play, play this game anymore and make these loans. And uh, there's a, the, the, the Federal Reserve Board makes this uh, statement to the public. It says, and this is a little bit, I'll, I'll, warn, I'll warn you, this has got some language in it that's certainly not the modern way we communicate. So I'll try to, I'll try to do it justice. When the board finds that conditions are arising which obstruct the Federal Reserve Banks in the effective discharge of their function of so many of so managing the credit facilities of the Federal Reserve System as to accommodate commerce and business, comma, it is its duty to inquire into them and take such measures as may deem suitable and effective in circumstances to correct them, which, in the immediate situation, means to restrain the use either directly or indirectly, of Federal Reserve facilities in aid of the growth of speculative credit. So what's, what's going on here, Dan, is that they're, the Fed's finally taking a baby step. We were talking earlier, they're just throwing money at these speculators and letting this happen. And here at this point, they're saying, hey, we're going to take a step and say, you can't use our money. We're not going to lend money for speculation and for buying stocks on margin. So maybe that, that sounds like the Federal Reserve is starting to realize, like you said, that something's up and maybe things are getting too heated. Right. And maybe maybe at the time they were trying to make a warning to to the world, but uh, it, it, it kind of fell on deaf ears. Back to the book here. It says, The statement that the board had no intention of interfering with loans to support speculation so long as Federal Reserve credit was not involved is especially noteworthy. So it, it, it you know what he's saying here is that here they send this message out and says, "Hey, we're not going to lend, make these. We're not going to encourage this anymore." And what everybody heard was, "Oh yeah, but you're you're going to still let it go. You're still going to let it happen, right? We can still keep keep the party going. You're just not going to supply. You know, if you're if you're at a, a a party that's out of control, and the host says, "Hey, uh, I'm not going to supply any of my booze anymore, but you're free to drink your own." You know, go ahead and get after it. Everybody's like, great, it's, we can still party. Wow. So by March of 1929, this is what we're, we're at, we're at March of 1929 now. It says here, toward the end of the month, disquieting news reached Wall Street. So this is just a few months after they made that statement. Everybody's thinking everything's going great. Toward the end of the month, disquieting news reached Wall Street. The Federal Reserve board was meeting daily in Washington. It issued no statements, though. Wait a second. They, the, the Federal Reserve Board was meeting on a regular basis, and 
they weren't issuing any any notices to the public. Right. That seems really odd about. now because if the Federal Reserve has their meeting, you know, once a month, then they're issuing statements like that hour. Yeah. Right afterwards. And everybody's on pins and needles, at least that focus on the markets. You're watching the news networks that focus on business. And I mean, we're, we're in today's world, they're very communicative. And every word is analyzed. Yeah. Because word for word, how they say it. And, and there's, there's, there's uh, people try to derive meaning from those words because they sometimes they say very little and everybody tries to figure out, okay, what does that mean? But the message here was we're meeting daily and are, then they're silent. So something's, something's up here. Back to the book. There was not a hint as to what the meetings were about, though, although everyone knew they concerned the market. The meetings continued day after day, and there was also an unprecedented Saturday session. On Monday, March 25th, the first market day following the unseemly Saturday meeting, the tension became unbearable. Washington was still silent. So what do you think happened? Oh, my gosh. People began to sell. Yeah, people get panicked if all this is happening and nobody's communicating, and now... uh your imagination fills the void certainly if there's no communication people are going to start making their own guesses and right and, and communicating with communicating in any situation is huge I and mean, we've seen this you know in our own careers where you know when there is no communication at all people assume the worst every single time and, and so this is this is a big mistake by the fed that they weren't talking and um you know so what did people do they start selling back to the book um they began curtailing their loans in the call market. When they say call market, they're talking margin market. Okay. So that's margin loans. That's those same loans we've been talking about where people are borrowing money and buying stocks. So they began curtailing loans in the call market, and the rate on brokers' loans went to 14%. This happens in like a day. On the next day, Tuesday, March 26th, everything was much worse. The Federal Reserve Board was still maintaining its by now demoralizing silence. A wave of fear swept the market. More people decided to sell, and they sold in astonishing volume. Thousands of speculators in whose previous experience the market had always risen now saw for the first time the seamy side of their new way of life. Before the day was out, many of these thousands received a preemptory telegram from their brokers, a telegram that was in the starkest contrast with the encouraging half-confidential rich uncle tone of all previous communications it asked for more margin promptly so what's going on here is that you know we, we didn't have the internet so they'd send these telegrams they'd send these these paper messages or they'd send via wire and and the telegram would arrive and uh it it was the way they communicated and one of the faster ways they could communicate and get a hold of someone it's kind of like an email today only it's part electronic part paper what they're doing here is they're saying hey your stocks have gone down enough that you no longer have enough collateral to sustain your loan. So you need to come up with more cash if you want to keep your stock. That's what that's what's going on with these margin calls. So you've got a Fed here, a Federal Reserve Board. So this is all the directors of all the, the, the Federal Reserve banks all over the country. So there's different banks in different cities. And they all get together. They're getting together daily, even on a Saturday, discussing things. They're remaining quiet. Everybody's freaking out. Stocks begin to fall, margin calls start coming in, and this is in March, and it's possible that that could have like really been 
the end, but there was a rebel in the mix. So Charles E. Mitchell, the director of the Federal Reserve Bank, kind of went against the board here, he talks about, and says, hey, we're going to arrange for some sort of lending to provide liquidity as people are doing their liquidations and covering some of these call, call things. So that was like magic. I mean, it went completely against the board in terms of the board's recommendations. But again, he runs the New York Fed. He has the choice. And he, he came out and told the press this, and it was like magic really changed uh, how the markets responded, and, and it turned some things around. So it, it provided the, you know, for now anyway, back to this book, for now, free at last from threat of government reaction or retribution, the market sailed off into the wild blue yonder. Especially after June 1, all hesitation disappeared. Never before or since have so many become so wondrously, so effortlessly, and so quickly rich. Perhaps Mr. Hoover and Mellon and the Federal Reserve were right in keeping their hands off. Perhaps it was worth being poor for a long time to be so rich for just a little while. So there was this scare in March of 1929, but that wasn't the end. As we all know the history, it was really later in the year when everything truly fell apart. And still, there's a little bit of a scare there in March, and then this New York Fed director says, yeah, it's okay, we got you. We got your back. And you know what that did? It just perpetuated the bubble a little bit more. And that's, that's what they're talking about here. You know, earlier we were talking about the leverage, people borrowing on margin, but that's it didn't stop there. When you're talking about a speculative bubble, the greed just becomes overwhelming. And uh, there's a chapter here he talks about, uh, the, the name of the chapter is In Goldman Sachs We Trust. And he's a, he was in a play on words there with the word trust. Back then, they didn't have mutual funds per se, and... Uh, they, they didn't have these exchange-traded funds or ETFs like we have today. That's Those are fairly new developments. But in the 1920s, as all these things are going up and leverage was easy, you know, the greed, like we said, can become overwhelming in this idea that, hey, we can, uh, we can package all these things. You don't need to go out and pick all your stocks on margin. These companies started creating all these trusts where you, basically you say, hey, you invest in my trust, and then the trust will go out and invest in stocks on margin. And more, more, more than that, the trust itself will be traded on the market as a company. So it's like, like, like maybe slightly similar to like Warren Buffett's company, Berkshire Hathaway. When you buy Berkshire Hathaway, it's a company, it's a corporation, it's a stock. But then Berkshire Hathaway, in turn, can go make investments on whatever they feel is appropriate. So they own parts of Coca-Cola, Dairy Queen, Geico Insurance, that kind of thing. And this kind of thing was going on then. And it was it was uh, he he talks here about the the advent of all these these trusts. And there were like just a huge amount of these 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 companies that then in turn could be bought on margin. So imagine this: you're going to borrow money to buy a, this trust and that trust in turn is borrowing money to buy other stocks. So you're just like doubling That's down like on the That's like layering standards. and layering the leverage. Correct. Correct. I mean, it's, it's, it's leverage upon leverage and you can, you can tell where this is going to go eventually. 
part of this chapter I'm just going to quote here. During 1928, an estimated 186 investment trusts were organized. By the early months of 1929, they were being promoted at the rate of prop of approximately one each business day. And by the autumn of 1929, the total assets of the investment trust were estimated to exceed eight billion of eight billions of dollars. They had increased approximately 11-fold since the beginning of 1927. So this is a fairly new thing. This idea of packaging things. And they didn't have mutual funds yet. The laws written for mutual funds hadn't happened yet. Um, these are not mutual funds. These are like just... They Bundles call them, of individual stocks. You're, you're buying into a trust and somebody else is going to be doing whatever they're doing with it. I'd say it's probably closer to like the hedge funds these days because there was no transparency really. You had no idea what was going on inside these investments. Um, so back here, a company would be organized... This is, a, this is a good description here. A company would be organized to buy stocks. The proletarian would, would say $200 would turn over his pittance to the company, which would then buy stocks in the rather less meager amount of $500. The additional $300 the company would get from a financial subsidiary, so they're borrowing money. Hey, Mr. Investor, give me $200. I'll give you $500 worth of stock. And we're going to borrow at, you know, from this other place to, in order for you to do that. And I tell you, when things are good, that can work out very much in your favor when the stocks are going up. More on this. Knowledge, manipulative skill, or financial genius were not the only magic of the investment trust. Oh, and here's where he's hitting it. There was also leverage. By the summer of 1929, one no longer spoke of investment trusts as such. One referred to high leverage trusts, low leverage trusts, or trusts without any leverage at all. Oh man, I, I, I can see this happening. You got, you, you got these investors who say, hey, uh, which one has the best return in the last year? And they're just tasting return. And I guarantee you, when the, when, those, when the stock market was going up like that, all the trusts that were high leverage, guess what their returns were doing? They were looking amazing and people were all over that. And I see it happening even now in, in, in some of the Facebook conversations that are going on between these beginner investors. Um, a lot of times you'll see people focusing in on some of these uh, funds or exchange traded funds where they have this leverage. And there's, there's one and a half times and you'll see two times and then three times. And guess which ones are the most popular when things are going well? It's the three times. Can you explain that a little bit more? The, the one times or yeah. the two times and three times it, leverage. It, it's funds. really it's really just looking at how much borrowing are they doing. I mean, you're, you're looking at, you know, you're trying to get a lot of leverage. Um, it works in both ways. So you'll have these funds, at least in modern days, you'll have these funds where the idea is that they're going to try to follow, like, like an index fund will follow, say, the S&P 500. And that's a real simple thing. You invest in the index fund and you're going to get the returns of that investment each day pretty much is going to be very, very close to whatever the S&P 500 index is. When you in incorporate leverage on an investment, you're kind of borrowing money to do that in a way. And what we do in modern times is they use, they'll use the futures markets and they'll, they'll do it that way to, to use different kinds of investment tools that didn't exist in the 20s. So they're not using a borrowed money, but the leverage and the impact of that is still very, very real. So for example... If you have a, a fund that says, hey, it's a two times 
daily volatility of the S&P 500 fund, then that investment is going to, those managers are going to try to engineer things so that each day you get double what the S&P 500 does. So if the S&P 500 is up 1% that day, theoretically that fund would be up 2% that day. So two times. It works the other way too though. If the stock market index that you're following, the S&P 500, for example, if that goes down 1% in a day, those managers are engineering it that it's going to do double whatever the S&P 500 does, which means what? You're going to go down 2%. So what you're doing is you're lengthening the string on your yo-yo on a daily basis, and every day is a do-over in these types of investments. The modern ones today. And these kind of th- types of things didn't, didn't happen back then. But that's our modern equivalent of this investment trust leveraged stuff is that you can have a real, a real volatile ride. And if you're right, things can look very, very good. And if, it, if the market goes up pretty consistently for a long, term, long time with no volatility or low volatility, I can tell you back in December and January, these things were all the rage. People were saying all you need to buy is the two act two times or the three times leveraged S and P five hundred fund, and what we saw happen in February March of twenty twenty, whenever there's a bear market, these things just drop like rocks, and so that's kind of the this is the kind of thing that was going on in the twenties before they had mutual funds, before they had the futures markets that were modern, they just had borrowing money from a bank in order to get that leverage. So this is just the setup that we're reading about it's right now. Just the setup. I mean, you, it's brewing, and we all know this is like watch. This is like you know, watching the movie Titanic. You know what's going to happen. But when we look at these, the kind of human behavior, and when you read the book, I mean, you really ought to read the whole book because you get into the, some of the details here about how people were thinking and how people were behaving, and then you can see even today when you talk, you hear investors talk, whether it's professionals or even amateurs. I mean, today there was a, a headline on, on one of the articles that said there's, um, you know, an amateur day trader says that uh, Warren Buffett is an idiot and that all you, you know, you can day trading is the way to go. And this person probably has only been investing for eight weeks since the bottom of the COVID crisis uh, of bear market. They really have never experienced a bear market, but they're very quick to talk about how one of the richest men in the world is, is a moron. That's kind of a sign. But you can see the same kinds of attitudes happening back here in in the 20s. And so these people are talking about these investments like, hey, you know, leverage is the way to go. And it says leverage, as it, it was back to the book here, leverage it was later to develop works both ways. But this aspect of mathematics of leverage was still unrevealed in early 1929. And notice must first be taken of the most dramatic of all investment company promotions of that remarkable year, those of Goldman Sachs. Goldman Sachs and Company, an investment banking and brokerage partnership then, came rather late to the investment trust business. The initial issue of stock in the trading corporation, they had this company called the Goldman Sachs Trading Corporation, was a million shares, all of which was bought by Goldman. At $100 a share for a total of $100 million. 
90% of that was then sold to the public at $104. By February 2nd, roughly three weeks before the merger, so there were, there were, this went on and on, and they merged with another, another trust, and the stock for which original investors had paid $104 was selling for $136.50. So I'm going to go back and rewind here a little bit. So within two months, this thing went from 104 to 136.50 on February 2nd. Two months. You've made like 30% in two months. You suppose some, some customers and clients might be on the, I want to get me some of that train? Yeah, the fear of missing out. Oh my gosh. Well, it gets even better here. Back to the book. Five days later, on February 7th, it reached $222.50. Can you say fear of missing out? That's kind of like the cryptocurrency. Of Anything. That just hit recently. Anything. It could be cryptocurrency. It could be anything that's just go, that's gone up significantly, suddenly gets a lot of attention. And when it gets a lot of attention, what do you think everybody's going to want to do? Oh, look, it's doing so well. I want to get me some of that. I think that if I buy that thing, it's, I'm going to have the same result next week. And this is, this is exactly how it works. Every single time in history, something goes up a lot, then everybody notices it, and then they go, I want to get me some of that. And they buy high, and sometimes they're, they get to benefit from it for a while. So skipping to the end of this story on this particular investment trust. So I'm now skipping ahead from 1929, 1928. I'm skipping ahead to the end here. Years later, on a gray dawn in Washington, the following colloquy, I guess conversation, occurred before a committee of the United States Senate. Senator Cousins, I apologize if I'm bad, you know, butchering his name, did Goldman Sachs and Company organize the Goldman Sachs Trading Corporation? Mr. Sachs, yes, sir. Senator Cousins, and it sold its stop to the public, Mr. Sachs. A portion of it, the firm invested originally in 10% of the entire issue for the sum of $10 million. Senator Cousins, and the other 90% was sold to the public? Yes, sir. At what price? $104. That is the old stock. The stock was split two for one. And what is the price of the stock now? Approximately one and three quarter. A dollar seventy five. A dollar seventy five. What a ride. When you see something that goes from one hundred four dollars to $222 in a few short months. It's, it's not necessarily the red flag. I mean, it's happened. There have been businesses that have been legitimate businesses that have that kind of growth and can sustain that kind of profit growth. And it's, it may have happened in the past, but this is a great example. Caution is probably the advice of the day if you see something like that happen. 
you, you don't buy high. How many times have we heard buy low, sell high? These people got all caught up, saw something going to the moon, and they jumped on thinking, you know, hey, you know, what could possibly go wrong? This is doing great. And we say it all the time. We say it all the time to people. There's no such thing as present tense when you're investing. There's the past performance and there's the future. There is really no present tense because it's always moving. There's what it just did and then there's what it's about to do. These people made that classic mistake. They bought in at something 104. It had gone to 222 and some of the people even bought at 222. And can you imagine losing over 99% of your investment just a few years later? I mean, this kind of stuff can end badly. And it's, it's not just the 1929 situation. This can happen, and it still happens to this day, where people chase things that are shiny, and, and they get burned in the end. It, in all probability, they get burned. There's a reason that you look at the bottom of every single investment piece of literature. and What does it always say? It says past performance is no guarantee of future results. Or it says past performance is no indication of future results. And we've seen research on this. We've even done some of our own like rough math on this. There's almost no correlation, however you measure it, between what something did and what it's about to do. And, and it's just really, really important lesson here. And these, these poor people back in the 20s, I mean, this is early on still. The crash hasn't even, you know. The, the crash hadn't even happened yet, but we know we know the end. I mean, a few years later, they'd gone from two twenty two to a dollar seventy five, and I'm beating a dead horse a little bit, but gosh, people, I wish people would just know this stuff. What What was interesting uh, as I'm thinking about this as you're talking, they didn't even know the math. So earlier in the chapter, you made a there was a reference to uh, where the math was not known with how these different instruments and this trusts how they react in the real world and so you've got a lot of people are jumping on the gravy train and no one really understands how these things even work yeah i mean all they're seeing is returns and they know that it's got high leverage but to a lot of those people perhaps they might have been looking at it and saying high leverage that's like it's just like a, a a name they they just didn't understand that it worked it cuts both ways and that what, if something, there's this old saying, what goes up must come down. And, and when generally over the long, 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 long term, we all know that the trend of the stock market is not sideways. It's generally been up for very long periods of time. But when something goes up really, really fast, it can go down really, really fast. That's the more important thing to key in on here. And that's, that's exa you're exactly right. That's the math that these people back then, and we see it happening now when things are good, people don't even think about risk. It was a classic, classic mistake, and, uh, and people paid dearly for it. So moving forward now, we're, we've, we've gone through, um, he's bouncing around a little bit here, but um, back in the book, we're into the summer. There was no summer lull in the Wall Street that year. So the summer of 1929, and he goes into some details and some names of people that I, you know, people may not recognize. But basically, the summer of 2000, or the summer rather of 1929, the stock market went up another 25 percent in three months. So it was up 30 percent in the very beginning. Yeah, and then and then add on another 25 percent on top of that in the three months in the summer, and you're talking about insanity. 
going on. The volume of trading was also consistently heavy, more than the prices of common more than the common the prices of common stocks were rising. So at a, at an appalling rate was the volume of speculation. So like yeah, there's a lot of trades being placed. Yeah, there's a lot of shares trading hands, but it's also much more speculative. Um, and, and it got to a point now where he talks about here, there was also a, a sharp criticism of the prophets of doom. So there's people out there trying to say, hey, you know, be reasonable. They sound like us talking right now. Hey, be reasonable. And everybody's saying, you're full of it. So it got to a point here where... Um, in Barron's on July 8, Sheldon Sinclair Wells explained that those who worried about brokers' loans and about the influx of funds from corporations simply did not know what was going on. These guys are so old school. They don't know what's going on. <laughs> We're the fresh new ones. We understand how it is today. This time it's different. Welcome to the new world where money's easy to make. You guys are crazy telling us we need to be careful. Ha ha, you're crazy. Going back on this, the best reassurance on brokers' loans was in the outlook for the market. So you had all these people making loans, getting their 12% loans on, on these margin loans, and even the lenders, the ones that aren't even speculating, they're still making 12% by lending money to the speculators. It's that old adage, hey, if there's a gold rush, just sell the shovels and you'll get rich. These people were getting rich just lending the money to all these speculators. But the problem was like the collateral, you know, it, it, it still depended on whether the outlook for the market. The official optimists were many inarticulate, it says here. Numerous college professors also exuded scientific confidence. That autumn, Professor Irving Fisher of Yale made his immortal estimate, quote, stock prices have reached what looks like a permanently high plateau, end quote. The bankers were also a source of encouragement to those who wished to believe in the permanence of the boom. A great many of them abandoned their historic role as guardians of the national f fiscal pessimism and enjoyed a brief respite of optimism. Wow, that sounds so much like uh, just in the mid-2000s, they had those things called ninja loans where you could borrow money and you have no income, uh, no job, no assets. So like no underwriting was going on with these lending corporations back oh, in yeah. the yeah. 2000s. Oh, you want to buy your fifth house? Oh, no problem. You know, we'll give you no money, no money down. Well, here's your fifth house. And, uh, oh, you don't want to tell us how much money you're worth and how much income you're bringing in? That's okay. I mean, that was going on in 2005, 2006, 2007. It's just the parallels between what was going on in the 1920s right. and what we've experienced throughout our careers with these different bubbles. It's really worth taking a moment to understand history. I mean, it, it, it's really true. If you, if you understand this stuff, you can see it happening. And it's not that you're going to like, it's not that it's like a perfect predictor of doom or anything when you see this, this kind of behavior, but you just need, it need, it's a sign that maybe you need to keep your guard up a little bit and, and do something to pay attention to the risks. 
I mean, it's, it's a party, but you know, you still need to be able to get home and that's the, and home safely. That's, yeah. that's something these people are, are, are missing out here. Back to the book. It also dominated the culture. Main Street had always had at least one citizen who could speak knowingly about buying or selling stocks. Now he became an oracle. But this is a great. This is a great piece here, um, and I tell you, I, we see we see this when we're around lots of people who are active and interested in in financial planning or investing. There's always somebody like that, right? That knows a little bit about something and. And when the better things are, the more interesting it gets. And this is this is just a, a great case study here. Back to the book here. Between human beings, there is a type of intercourse which proceeds not from knowledge, nor even lack of knowledge, but from failure to know what isn't known. At luncheon in downtown Scranton, the knowledgeable physician spoke of the impending split up in the stock of Western utility investors and the effect on prices. Neither the doctor nor his listeners knew why there should be a split up, why it should increase values, or even why Western utility investors should have any value. But neither the doctor nor his audience knew that he didn't know. And the stock just kept on going up, right? How often do you hear people talking with authority about things that they know a little bit, but they literally know so much less than what they, they think they know? And other people are listening to them. It's a recipe for disaster in the long run. And that's exactly what was going on back here at this, this point in time. Um, but even so, I mean, it's taken over the culture. But as, as he talks about some of the details here, only about 5% of households in America were invested in the stock market in any way back then. 95% of the people had no money in the market. But it just took over the culture in how people were talking about. And... Um, the, the, the striking thing, and this is a quote from the book, the striking thing about the stock market speculation of 1929 was not the massiveness of the participation. Rather, it was the way it became central to culture. As the market, began, as the market came to be considered less and less a long-run register of corporate prospects and more and more a prospect of manipulative artifice, the speculator, the speculator was required to give it his closest and preferably his undivided attention. So what's going on here? Nobody's caring about whether these businesses are any good or not, whether they actually make profits or, or have revenues, or if they're safe, they're just looking at price movements and chasing the returns. And when you do that, things get volatile, and then people start having to pay attention. Brokers' offices, says here, Brokers' offices were crowded from 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. with seated or standing customers who, instead of attending to their own businesses, were watching the blackboard. Some customers' rooms, it was difficult to get access to a spot from which the posted quotations could be seen. No one could get a chance to inspect the tape. You got people abandoning their day job watch their stock prices on a minute-to-minute -minute basis. And back then, there was no internet, so they're having to like literally go to some place in some crowded room where the quotes are posted on the stocks, and it's all delayed and all that. But like all parties, they come to an end. And by se on September 3, by common consent, the great bull market of the 1920s came to an end. 
the immediate cause of the break was clear and interesting. Speaking before his annual National Business Conference on September 5th, Roger Babson observed, sooner or later, this is quote, sooner or later a crash is coming and it may be terrific, end quote. More from his quote, factories will shut down, men will be thrown out of work, the vicious circle will get in full swing, and the result will be a serious business depression. This was not exactly reassuring. Wall Street was not at a loss as to what to do about Babson. It promptly and soundly denounced him. So you've got a voice in the wilderness crying out saying, hey, this is going to end badly. And what's, what's the response? You're full of it. Look how well everything's been doing. It couldn't possibly end. This happens every single time there's any kind of a speculative bubble in anything. People act like this. You look around, pay attention, read between the lines. You can see this stuff a mile away. As you're reading this book, and I encourage, I tell you, it, it, it's a little bit wonky because some of the language is a little different back then and they've got names of people maybe you don't know who they are. It's worth a read. There's a reason this book has not been out of print since 1955. It's worth a read. Because when you read this, and I, the first time I was going through this, I, I stopped and I, I was thinking, my goodness, I just had a conversation with somebody that's, out, that's talking like this. It's just a fascinating study in, in not only the markets, but, but in how human beings behave. Just phenomenal. So now we're coming up on the crash itself. In 1929, the economy was headed for trouble. Eventually, that trouble was violently reflected in Wall Street. Confidence did not disintegrate at once. Although the trend of the markets was generally down, good days came with the bad. During September, brokers' loans increased by nearly $670 million by far the largest increase of any month to date. This showed that speculative zeal had not diminished. Still doubling down. September 1929. It's a month away. Still, let's borrow more. Skipping ahead now. Monday, October 21 was a very poor day. The third greatest volume in history and some tens of thousands who were watching the market throughout the country made a disturbing discovery. There was no way of telling what was happening. Previously on big days, the bull market, the ticker had fallen behind and no one didn't discover until well after the market closed how much richer they had become. But the experience with the falling market had been much more limited. Many now learned for the first time that they could be ruined totally and forever, and not even know it. And if they were not ruined, there was a strong tendency to imagine it. From the opening on the 21st, the ticker lagged. So when he's talking about the ticker, back then, people couldn't watch TV or listen to the radio or, or, or know what their stocks were doing minute to minute, day to day. There was no internet, none of that stuff. So you might even have, and it's a, such a manual process, a trade might got, go through at one price and you might not even find out about that trade until two to three hours later. So what's happening here is that there's just a lag. So back to the book. And by noon, it was an hour late. Not until an hour and 40 minutes later after the close did the market of the... I'll back up. 
Not until an hour and 40 minutes after the close of the market did it record the last transaction. That's so weird compared to today for a lot of folks because you're able to pull up your phone and go on the internet and see what your stock finished at within seconds of 3 o'clock when the market closes, 3 o'clock central anyway. And, and here, the people they have no idea what had happened in their accounts. And that's if you're standing there in the brokerage room. If you're at home waiting for tomorrow's paper, you have no idea. And by the time you get the paper, the market's opened. And so remember that, that Babson guy they denounced? Yes. Okay. Well, he, he's back. However, another jarring suggestion came from Babson. He recommended selling stocks and buying gold. And this is a time when the, the, the dollar was on the gold standard. Skipping ahead here. Thursday, October 21st, is the first day, first of the days which history identifies with the panic of 1929. Measured by disorder, fright, and confusion, it deserves to be so regarded. Often there were no buyers. And only after wide vertical declines could anyone be induced to bid. So when somebody says they're going to bid, that they're saying, hey, I'll, okay, now I'll buy your shares from you. Now that it's gone down so much, now it's attractive. So that's when they're bidding. Once again, the ticker dropped behind. Prices fell further and faster, and the ticker lagged more and more. The uncertainty led more and more people to try to sell. Others, no longer to res- able to respond to margin calls, were sold out. Yeah, you get a call from your brokerage firm and they say, hey, you need to put more money in in order to hold your stocks because your margin loan doesn't have enough collateral. If you can't come up with the cash, they sell your stock. That just adds fuel to the, uh, the and downward then, spiral. And that other spiral. guy sells, and the other guy sells, and the other guy sells, and the other guy sells, and the next thing you know, it, you got a problem. By 11.30, the market had surrendered to blind, relentless fear. This indeed was a panic. In New York, at least, the panic was over by noon. At noon, the organized support appeared. At 12 o'clock, reporters learned that a meeting was convening at 23 Wall Street at the offices of J.P. Morgan & Company. A decision was quickly reached to pool resources to support the market. By early afternoon, when the market started up, the ticker was hours behind. It was eight and a half minutes past seven that night before the ticker finished recording the day's misfortunes. Representatives of 35 of the largest wirehouses assembled at the offices of Hornblower and Weeks and told the press on departing that the market was fundamentally sound and technically in a better condition than it had been in months. It was the unanimous view of those present that the worst had passed. The financial community, the Times said, now felt secure in the knowledge that the most powerful banks in the country stood ready to prevent a recurrence of panic. No one knew, but it cannot be stressed too frequently that for effective incantation, knowledge is neither necessary nor assumed. So we're talking about an incantation. I looked this up. It's to speak it into reality, not like other later leaders. So you've 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 got this horrible day happening. And all the leaders of Wall Street convene and they say, hey, we're going we're gonna to get together to support this market and start buying when others are selling and try to offer some level of support because we've got the deeper pockets and we can kind of keep this party going. It's going to cost us, 
but we're going to go ahead and support. And then they publicly say it. Hey, everything's totally fine. You know, everything's sound and secure. The state of our union is strong, that kind of thing, that kind of language where you're just speaking confidence into the people. And just the, the very act of saying everything's well, some people will believe that and then it will turn out to be true. You're just speaking it into, cre- into reality. Whether it exists at the moment you said that speech or not, the idea is if you can just get enough other people to, to believe you, then it can be true. And that's, that's what they were going on. So whenever you hear in this book, he talks about this idea of organized support. It's basically all the rich, the rich bankers getting together and saying, hey, what can we do to manipulate the market in a way that, that's favorable for everybody? or even for themselves for for the most part. We believe, said one house, that the investor who purchases securities at this time with the discrimination that is always a condition of prudent investing may do so with utmost confidence. On Monday, the real disaster began. So, I mean, this is just just a quote. these guys are just all is well. Remain calm. Huh. It, yeah. remi- it reminds me of uh, there was a, a character um, when the when the Allied forces or the, the the coalition forces entered Baghdad in two thousand three. There was a Iraqi official that would go on television. And would say he'd be on camera and be saying, "There's there's no Americans in Baghdad. There's no military forces. Everything is totally fine." And it was their attempt to get everybody to kind of calm down and relax. And and uh, there was it got, it got to be comical because he's saying these things, and you could see explosions going off in the background from the war that was very real and very happening. But he's trying to make an attempt at it. You know, they called him Baghdad Bob, I think. Huh. Remember that? So just a bizarre situation, but. Again, these things tend to repeat themselves or at least rhyme. So this chapter here is uh, things become more serious. The singular feature of the great crash of 1929 was that the worst continued to worsen. What looked one day like the end proved to be on the next day to have been only the beginning. Nothing could have been more ingeniously designed to maximize the suffering and also to ensure that as few as possible escaped the common misfortune. The fortunate speculator who has funds to answer the first margin call presently got another, an equally urgent one, and if he met that there, which, if he met that, there would still be another. In the end, all the money he had, ext- he had was extracted from him and lost. The man with the smart money, who was safely out of the market when the first crash came, naturally went back in to pick up bargains. The bargains then suffered a ruinous fall. Even the man who waited out all of October and all of November, who saw volume of trading return to normal in Wall Street become as placid as a produce market, and who then bought common stocks, would see their value drop to a third or a fourth of the purchase price in the next 24 months. The Coolidge bull market was a remarkable phenomenon. The ruthlessness of its liquidation was, in its own way, equally remarkable. He's stepping back into the details of this period here. 
talking about when the markets were all volatile and there was all that volume back in October of 1929. Remember, this is a manual process. There were no computers. It's people saying, hey, I'll take 100 shares at 35 and I have a piece of paper with it and you take the piece of paper physically from me and you record it in your little book and it's all on paper and it's human beings interacting. And it looks chaotic if you've ever seen videos of, of the open outcry system. It's just, it can be chaotic. And what, what was happening here is that as everything went, got crazy, it says here, everyone was badly in need of sleep. Employees of some stock exchange firms had not been home for days. Nerves were bad and mistakes were becoming increasingly common. So you can imagine these people are getting exhausted and not only are things bad, they're making mistakes. And so the ticker that you're seeing, you don't even know if that's accurate or not. Not so, only is it delayed, but yeah, I mean, it, it just gets it gets insane to the point where you have orders that didn't get through. And so now they're, I mean, and be filled at even a lower price. I mean, it's a nightmare. And at the same time, you have the talking heads of the big firm saying, all is well, we're going to support this thing. Correct. Correct. Now we're on to Wednesday, October 30th. The next day, those forces at work, which on occasion brings salvation precisely when salvation seems impossible. I'm sorry, let me reread that. The next day, those forces were at work, which on occasion brings salvation precisely when salvation seems impossible. On the evening of the 29th, Dr. Julius Klein, Assistant Secretary of Commerce, friend of President Hoover, and the senior apostle of the official economic view, took to the radio to remind the country that President Hoover had said that the fundamental business of the country was sound. So there you go. More, more skipping ahead. By now... It was also evident the investment trust, once considered a, bust, a buttress of the high plateau and a built-in defense against collapse, were really a profound source of weakness, the leverage of which people only a fortnight before had spoken so knowledgeably and even affectionately was now fully in reverse. This is what we were talking about. How's, that, how's that three times fun doing now, buddy? Is just it's just tragic, but these people were just they bought into it, bought into the hype. Back to the book. By early November, the stock of most of them had become virtually unsaleable. That's these investment trusts. Never was there a time when more people wanted more money more urgently than those days. The word that a man had quote got caught end quote by the market was the signal for his creditors to descend on him like locusts. Many who were having trouble meeting their margin calls wanted to sell some stocks so they could hold the rest and thus salvage something from their misfortunes. Their investment trust securities could not be sold for any appreciable sum and perhaps not at all. They were forced, as a result, to realize, to realize on their good securities. So they had to sell their good stuff because they couldn't dump the bad stuff. Have you ever... Did we experience, is it me or did we experience something like this back in 2008? Yeah. You had, you had people who were in these hedge funds that didn't have liquidity. And they wanted to dump some of that stuff. 
but they couldn't. So they had, they needed some money somewhere, but all their money was locked up in real estate. And they had all these problems with their real estate and their mortgages and all these other situations. And they're selling their, their good stocks and their good high quality things to pay down mortgages and do other things because their rental property folded or they're behind on a mortgage payment or whatever it is. This is the same thing. People being forced to sell good stuff just to, because they need the money. And they're selling as things are going down. So they're being forced to sell their good stuff at losses. Now it's important to note here, and he, he talks about this. It says here, there was also disturbing news from beyond the market. Fundamentals seemed to be turning sour. This, and this is, this is something that I think a lot of people get, get wrong. Here you have a situation where the market has already responded and you already have things going down. And then later, the news of fundamentals of the economy come out that they're a little worse. And we're seeing a little bit right now. You have, you have a situation where people are saying, hey, why is the stock market up? Right now, 2020. Right now, 2020. We're coming off the bottom of that COVID-19 crash in, in March. And people are saying, why is the stock market going up when there's all this bad news out there? And the thing to keep in mind is the stock market investors are looking forward, not backward, at the, at the real economy. It's an anticipation of the future. So what's driving some of this rise in, in, in its market is people are expecting things to get better because when everybody's been stuck at home for months and think people go back to work, people are making the leap of logic saying, oh, it's better, therefore stocks should go up. But in this, in this situation, it was the exact opposite. The market had already started declining and then fundamentals start to go down. Furthermore, organized support had failed. For the moment, even organized reassurance had been abandoned. So to put this into perspective, in two and a half months, in 1929, and he goes into the numbers in the book in here, you can kind of go through that and kind of have to do a little bit of research to figure out and put all this together. But effectively, what happened in a two and a half month period in 1929 was a 48% decline in stocks in two and a half months. Not quite as fast as what we saw earlier this year, but wow. That's like the entire 2007 and 2008, 2009 financial crisis happening in, in two and a half months. And he goes in, he talks about how, you know, another, this is just a, a kind of a sidebar, another little thing they find out when things go bad, <clears throat> they discover uh, embezzlers get found out. You know, Bernie Madoff turned himself in because, only because of the 2008 market. When that decline happened, he could no longer support the withdrawals and there was no more money coming in. And so people were asking for withdrawals from his fund, and eventually he had to turn himself in because there was no way he could keep the uh, keep the Ponzi scheme that he was running going. And this is, they talk about a little bit about this. At any given time, there exists an inventory 
of undiscovered embezzlement in one or more, precisely not in, the country's businesses and banks. This inventory, it should perhaps be called the bezel, amounts at any moment to many millions of dollars. It also varies in size with the business cycle. In good times, people are relaxed, trusting, and money is plentiful. But even though money is plentiful, there are always many people who need more. Under these circumstances, the rate of embezzlement grows, the rate of discovery falls off, and the bezel increases rapidly. In the depression, in depression, all this is reversed. Money is watched with a narrow, suspicious eye. The man who handles it is assumed to be dishonest until he proves himself otherwise. Audits are penetrating and meticulous. Commercial morality is enormously improved. The bezel shrinks. The stock market boom and the ensuing crash caused a traumatic exaggeration of these normal relationships. Just as the boom accelerated this rate of growth, so the crash enormously advanced the rate of discovery. Within a few days, something close to universal trust turned into something akin to universal suspicion. Audits were ordered. Strained or preoccupied behavior was noticed. Most important, the collapse in stock values made irredeemable the position of the employee who had embezzled to play the market. He now confessed. So if there's any good thing that comes of these bad situations, it's that you finally find out who the crooks are. And then you can change the rules. And this has been playing out over history over and over again. And it just, it, it just, bears, it just bears repeating. You need to be careful when things are going really, really great because people get lazy. There's a saying that uh, good times make soft people. And soft people make lead to hard times. And then hard times make good people, strong people. And this is exactly what's going on here. So now we're kind of past that. That initial part of the crash has started to happen. He talks a little bit more about the aftermath and the consequences here and the causes, perhaps. After the Great Crash came the Great Depression, which lasted with varying severity for 10 years. On the whole, the Great Stock Market Crash can be much more readily explained than the Depression that followed it. As already so often emphasized, the collapse in the stock market in the autumn of 1929 was implicit in the speculation that went before. The only question concerning that speculation was how long it would last. We do not know why a great speculative orgy occurred in 1928-29. Money, by the ordinary test, was tight in the late 20s. Far more important than the rate of interest and the supply of credit is the mood. Speculation on a large scale requires a pervasive, pervasive sense of confidence and optimism and conviction that ordinary people were meant to be rich. Savings must also be plentiful. Speculation, accordingly, is most likely to break out after a substantial period of prosperity rather than in the early phases of recovery from a depression. Finally, 
a speculative outbreak has a greater or less immunizing effect. The ensuing collapse automatically destroys the very mood speculation requires. It follows that an outbreak of speculation provides a reasonable assurance that another outbreak will not immediately occur. With time and the dimming of memory, the immunity wears off and a recurrence becomes possible. Dan, I've seen this. I've seen this twice already in my career, and I'm sorry, sorry. It's so fast right now, I'm seeing it happen again. After the dot-com bubble for a few years, people were still fresh in their mind, and they're thinking, oh my gosh, I don't ever want to go through that again. It's the worst thing ever. Manage my risk. And then by 2006 and 2007, the memories had faded. And we're starting to get feedback from a few people of, hey, I want to become more aggressive with my investments. And this is 2007 to the point where somebody says, hey, you haven't been very aggressive with my investments. I'm this, this is the same person that was saying in 2003, 2002, please protect me. By 2007, they're looking back and saying, hey, you're not being aggressive enough. I want to be more aggressive. And in 2007, the market, what happened to the market? It kind of peaked. And then the 2008 financial crisis happens. And then people are panicky for a couple years after that. And by 2015, 2016, 2017, people start saying, hey, I think I want to be more aggressive. I want to be more aggressive with my investments. What have you done for me lately? type of thing. They're not paying attention to risk. And then it went to 2018. 2019 was amazing. A great year in the markets. And, and sure enough, it started up again in late 2019. All you need is to buy is XYZ because look, it's been doing so well. It's been 10 whole years or I've been investing for four whole years and it's been great. Yeah. What's interesting, uh, you're talking about uh, the risk and people perhaps keeping their eye off the ball and they're really focusing on the immediate returns. And I guess for those long-term investors and those folks who are trying to put themselves and their financial situations in good, solid foundation, they lose track of goals and so uh, some of this sounds like some of these folks are they're not they're no longer thinking about what they're trying to accomplish it's about oh my gosh uh, I'm missing out and they have that that, that fear it's, of it's missing a gambler's out. mentality is what it is it's, right it, I'm not I'm not even paying attention to planning this isn't about planning this is about fun this is about excitement this is about holy crap I can get rich quick and and what he's saying here is like when that frenzy's happening, the odds of it happening right away and starting up again is not very high. What you need to have happen is you need it to completely blow up and wait for everybody to forget. And what we're seeing right now is we've seen all these people in the last like few weeks since the bottom of the stock market get all excited about things and they're not they have no idea what a stock is they have no idea what the tax consequences are of any of these these things they they have no clue about anything related to investments but they know how to find out that that one thing went up and oh my gosh it went up a lot and oh my gosh if i would have owned that thing i could have tripled my money in the last 6 weeks 
this is my path to retirement. I don't know what my parents and grandparents have been doing, but if this keeps up, I could be retired in the next year and a half. And it's it's not that they had went through something and forgotten it. It's that they're so new, they haven't even experienced reality yet. But what, the, what, what Galbraith is saying here is that it's, this is just a normal thing. Every speculative bubble, it bursts. Then time goes on and people totally forget all the lessons from the before. And then they go make the same dang mistake over and over again. Right. And the reason we're covering this is because we recognize that and we're trying desperately to say, hey, please pay attention. You know, if you want to participate in some speculative investments, that's fine. Just understand what you're getting yourself into before you go do it. You need to ask until you understand. And you should know what you're doing a little bit. And if you're just out playing, you know, I mean, if you're playing with $10 in a Robinhood account, good for you. You know, that's that's great. You can learn without risking a lot of money. But the, the danger here with all this is that if you have that attitude and you suddenly come into like serious money and you start saying, oh, look, it's doing so well. I think I'll put my serious money into that type of stuff. Right. All my retirement monies, cash in my 401k plan and invest speculatively. Back to the book. The causes of the Great Depression are still far from certain. And remember, he's writing this in 1955. A lack of certainty, it may be observed, is not evident in the contemporary writing on the subject. Much of it tells what went wrong and, and why with marked firmness. However, this paradoxically can itself be an indication of uncertainty. When people are least sure, they are often most dogmatic. We do not know what the Russians intend, so we state with great assurance what they will do. We compensate for our inability to foretell the consequences of, say, rearming Germany by asserting positively just what the consequences will be. So it is in economics. Yet, in explaining what happened in 1929 and after, one can distinguish between explanations that might be right and those that are clearly wrong. What then are the plausible causes of the Depression? First, there is the question of why economic activity turned down in 1929. Second, there is a vastly more important question of why, having started down on this unhappy occasion, it went down and down and down and remained low for a full decade. And this is the thing that's like, this is the, what sets 1929 apart. There had been crashes before, but this is the only time that it turned into a 10-year depression. So there must have been some sort of a perfect storm, and he goes into this. The weakening can be variously explained. Production of industrial products for the moment had outrun consumer and investment demand for them. We kind of saw this in a similar thing in 2007 in the housing market. Everybody was buying out. There's a huge demand for housing. People were easy money could buy houses. And then all the builders decided, well, if everybody wants to buy houses, let's build a bunch of houses. And you had an oversupply problem that developed there. There are also other possible explanations of the downturn. Back of the insufficient advance in investment may have been the high interest rates. 
perhaps, although less probably, trouble was transmitted to the economy as a whole from some weak sector like agriculture. Further explanations can be offered, but one thing about this experience is clear. Until well along in the autumn of 1929, the downturn was limited. The recession in business activity was modest and underemployment was relatively slight. Up to November, it was possible to argue that not much of anything had happened. On other occasions, as noted in 1924-1927, and of late in 1949, the economy has undergone similar recession. But unlike these other occasions in 1929, the recession continued and continued and got violently worse. This is the unique feature of the 1929 experience. This is what we really need to understand. There seems little question that in 1929, modifying a famous cliche, the economy was fundamentally unsound. Many things were wrong, but five weaknesses seem to have played seems to have had an especially intimate bearing on the ensuing disaster. They are number 1, the bad distribution of income. In 1929, the rich were indubitably rich. The figures are not entirely satisfactory, but it seems certain that the 5% of the population with the highest incomes in that year received approximately one-third of all personal income. I'm stepping away. So to put that in perspective, I looked up what it's like today. So back then, 5% of the people were controlling 33% of the income. Um, you know, and right now, we're hearing a lot about uh, income inequality in America right now, and the rich are getting richer, and uh, the few control so much. And uh, the, the fact is, like, right now, it's uh, the top 5% control 28% of the income. So this was an era that was even more top-heavy in the rich people controlling wealth than it is today in 2020. And so when that happened, you have an economy that's, and I'm going back to the book, the economy was dependent on a high level of investment or a high level of luxury consumer spending or both. So when you've got a third of your income controlled by 5% of the people, those people become really, really, really important to the economy. And when they stop being able to spend, that's not a good thing. Number two, the bad corporate structure. He goes into this in more detail, but the most important corporate weakness was inherent in a vast new structure of holding companies and investment trusts. The holding companies controlled large segments of the utility, railroad, and, in, and entertainment business. Here, as with the investment trusts, was the constant danger of devastation by reverse leverage. In particular, dividends from the operating companies paid the interest on the bonds of the upstream holding companies. I'll read that again. In particular, dividends from the operating companies, so the profits of these operating companies, were paid upstream to their holding company who owned them and paid the interest on the holding company's loans. The interruption of the dividends meant default on the loans, so as the small company downstream has a problem, suddenly the big company upstream can't pay interest on their loan. Bankruptcy and collapse of the structure. That sounds like you have a situation where 
you might have a, a very solid subsidiary that's sending money up to its parent. The parent defaults on that loan, and then the parent goes out of business or files for bankruptcy, mm-hmm. and now you have this good subsidiary that suffers. That suffers. Yeah. Or you could have a holding company that owns 10 businesses. And what he's describing here is that one of those 10 businesses has a problem, but now the big company, the big company cannot, uh, cannot pay their debt. And so the big company goes under. So corporate structure is a big deal. And you, you, you know, Gary Vaynerchuk's talked about this of late about how, um, a lot of business models are, are nothing more. These are like startup tech companies or software companies. And the, the people who are, some of these people who are starting some companies, their, their whole purpose in creating these startups is a get rich quick scheme. They're, they're, they've got a great business model. They've got an idea. And, but the whole thing is just a financial arbitrage situation. They're not really passionate about sticking with the actual business that they're trying to do. They're just trying to get the, get it to the point where they can sell it off to some big company like Google and become rich because that's happened in the tech bubble. It was happening all over the place. And so this is again, nothing new. These kind of corporate structures are, exist out there. A lot of times the corporate structure can be a problem. So you just got to be aware of these kind of things. Number three, the bad banking structure. So this one's, this is, this goes into a little bit more depth. We're going to try to touch on this a little bit, but says here, the weakness was implicit in the large numbers of independent units. When one bank failed, the assets of others were frozen while depositors elsewhere had a pregnant warning to go and ask for their money. Thus, one failure led to other failures, and and these spread with a domino effect. Even in the best of times, local misfortune or isolated mismanagement could start a chain reaction. So what you have here is you have um, XYZ Bank in a small town who legitimately has a problem. Every other bank for three counties is totally fine. But once the rumor mill starts, you know, hey, I went to the bank and my bank, my bank's going under, then everybody goes to their bank and tries to get all their money out of their savings and checking accounts. It's called a run on the bank. And for, you know, for people, just to back up, for people who don't understand what that even means, you got to understand first, understand how banks work. If you go put your savings with a bank, they don't just put it in a box waiting for you to come and get it later. It's not like some magical horn of plenty that just gives you interest on your savings and checking account or your CD. In order for them to pay you whatever they pay you in interest, they take your money and then they lend it to some other person to buy a car or a home or a credit card so they can buy shiny things they can't afford, that kind of stuff. And that's how banks make money. So you can imagine at any minute of any day, if you walk into a bank and say, I want to withdraw all of my money from the bank, they don't necessarily have it ready and available. They have a good portion of it available. They're required to have some level of reserves to provide that liquidity for people who need the money legitimately. But if you have an entire population all go to the bank tomorrow and request to withdraw all of their money, the bank's going to fold, at least back then. There was no FDIC insurance. 
There was no government backing of these banks. If a bank went under, your savings are gone. Like, gone, gone. And that's what was going on. Again, it would be hard to imagine a better arrangement for magnifying the effects of fear. Yeah, the economy's gone bad. Yeah, I lost my job or I'm laid off because of a virus or because of a depression or whatever it is. But at least I have my savings. At least I can live off of my emergency fund for a few months. In this situation, your emergency funds vanished. Your checking account is vanished. Your debit card is gone. There's no savings account. It's gone. And you don't have work, which means you have no way of getting food for your next meal. Yeah, that'd be terrifying. As bad as people have it now where they're having to stay at home and there's a lot of people out of work right now, there was no government sending them checks. There was no loans being made to the businesses to get that done. Imagine your bank going away now. It's fascinating thinking about the evolution of these various institutions. Back then, those banks were getting started. They were doing things that had never been done before, like those investment trusts, they didn't understand the math, as was described earlier right, in the right. book. And so here you are, you find out the consequences, and uh, you're able to learn from those mistakes and issue new regulations. And Right. I mean, it's important to note that the banks failed back then. It was important to have something on the side outside of the banking world if you were going to and that's 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 where a lot of this like i need to keep something out of the bank it comes from somebody's parents somebody's grandparents said listen you might not be able to get to your bank and so the response to this and we're we're we're, we're stepping aside here from the book but the response has been the creation of the fdic so that you don't have to ever worry about your bank failing in america if you, your accounts are covered by the fdic and they're good for it. And what that does is it prevents the run on the bank. You can feel comfortable that even if JP Morgan Chase goes bankrupt, that your savings aren't going to go away because there's FDIC insurance in place. Very, very important distinction today of how different things are and how systems can be developed in response to bad situations. And there's always some good that comes out of bad things. He talks about this other one. This is very, very hard to describe simply. But number four, the number four cause that contributed to the Great Depression was the dubious state of the foreign balance. So countries are trading back and forth. I'm going to buy, um, it's the old guns and butter debate from an econ- economics class, is that I'm going to sell you bun- uh, guns, but I'm going to buy your butter type of thing. And you need cows, but... Um, I have the feed for those cows. You know, so I'll, I'll buy the cows from you, but I'll sell you the corn to feed the cows, that kind of thing. There's a trade that goes on between countries. And back then, countries would have to cough up, if there was a trade imbalance, they'd have to cough up cash to balance things out on a regular basis. And so it says here, countries could not cover their adverse trade balance with the United States with increased payments of gold Back then, the gold and the dollar were virtually the same thing, at least not for long. This meant 
that they had either to increase their exports to the United States or reduce their imports from the United States or default on their past loans. So what was going on in the situation is there'd be a trade imbalance and they'd say, hey, can we, Im- can we increase our imports to the United States? Well, guess what? Americans can't buy those products from that foreign country. They couldn't buy anything at this point. That's exactly right. And so the other option was, you know, they try to increase their stuff, their exports to the United States, but the United States responded by sharply increasing the tariffs. Because again, we can't, we need to have our own people. This is, this was the mentality. We need, you know, America's economy's in trouble. We need American businesses to stay in business and not deal with foreign competition. So what, what happened? They said, we're going to put a tariff on all those, all those imports from those foreign countries. And so what that leads those countries to do is then what they do is they stop buying stuff from America because of that. They got to balance their trade somehow or they default on their loans. So what, what ends up happening is a lot of the biggest exports from the United States to these foreign countries were food. So that affected farmers in America. And he doesn't mention in this book, but also that happened in the 1930s was this dust bowl across the entire heartland. And it just made it even worse. And we'll get into that sometime. We talk about the Great Depression at more length, but wow. The fifth one, though, he talks about here is the poor state of economic intelligence. Asked how the government could best advance recovery, the sound and responsible advisor urged that the budget be balanced. Both parties agreed to this unanimously. A commitment to a balanced budget is always comprehensive. It then meant there could be no increase in government outlays to expand purchasing power and relieve distress. From 1930 on, the budget was far out of balance, and balance therefore meant, get this, an increase in taxes, a reduction in spending, or both. The Democratic platform in 1932 called for an immediate and drastic reduction of government expenditures. Sounds pretty good, actually. Yeah, yeah. Balanced budget. Makes sense. To accomplish at least a 25% decrease in the cost of government. The balanced budget was not a subject of thought. Those simple precepts of a simple world did not hold amid the growing complexities of the early 30s. Mass unemployment in particular had altered the rules. Events had played a very bad trick on people, but almost no one tried to think out the problem anew. So what's going on here is that something that seems like total common sense, you run a balanced budget and this is what you got to do. And then you have this extraordinary weird situation developed from the speculative bubble that popped and all this chain reaction of banks failing. No one thought creatively outside the box. They just said, Oh, we always, we always balance the budget. This is just what we do. It's how it works. And so what, what they do, they reduced government spending No assistance for the people suffering. No assistance for the people suffering. No checks going out to people. No paycheck protection plan. None of it. 
In fact, they raised the taxes. And then they raised taxes on people. Now, granted, taxes were pretty low back in the day, but still, you know, hey, I know you're out of work, but you know what we're going to do? We're going to go ahead and make your life worse. There was also the bogey of going off the gold standard and most surprisingly of risking inflation. Until 1932, the United States added formidably to its gold reserves, and instead of inflation, the country was experiencing the most violent deflation in the nation's history. Yet every sober advisor saw dangers here, including the dangers of runaway price increases. So they were, we were entering a period of deflations, and at that time, people were concerned about prices rising when prices were actually going yeah, down. And we weren't just entering it. This was 1932. We were already well in the throes of this Great Depression, and prices are falling like a cliff, and everybody's freaking out over inflation and the causes of inflation. And to some extent, you could be seeing this today. People worried about all the uh, extra expenditures and the deficit spending that just happened, when in actuality, they may simply just be filling in a chuck hole. You think the policymakers in Washington, D.C. right now on both sides of the aisle and at the Federal Reserve have not read this book? They all went to Harvard. This man was a professor at Harvard for 50 years. I am confident that all these people have read this book, in particular this chapter. Back to the book. In 1931 or 32, the danger or even the feasibility of such, such a boom he's talking about inflation, was nil. The advisors and counselors were not, however, analyzing the danger or even the possibility. The fear of inflation reinforced the demand for a balanced budget. It also limited efforts to make interest rates low, credit plentiful, or at least redundant, and borrowing as easy as possible under the circumstances. Devaluation of the currency was, of course, flatly ruled out. Interesting, as I was reading this book, in this chapter in particular, it was in the midst of the government's response to COVID-19 and the lockdown. People working from home, the stay-at-home orders, and people not able to work. And what did they do? They made interest rates very low. They made credit plentiful, or at least redundant. They made borrowing as easy as possible under the circumstances. It's exactly the opposite of what was going on in the early 30s. That fascinated me when I was reading that. Back to the book. The economic advisors of the day had both the unanimity and the authority to force the leaders of both parties to disavow all the available steps to check deflation and depression. In its own way, this was a marked achievement. A triumph of dogma over thought. The consequences were profound. It is in light of the above weaknesses of the economy that the role of the stock market crash in the great tragedy of the 30s must be seen. The collapse in securities affected the first instance the wealthy and the well-to-do, but we see in the world of 1929 this was a vital group, exploiting weaknesses of the corporate structure. Now that the accounts had, in the main, to be balanced by reduced exports, he talked about. Finally, when the misfortune had struck, the attitudes of the time kept anything from being done about it. 
but he's just laying this all out and I'm skipping around with little excerpts here and there. But you had these, you had a lot of people that were rich that were really, really important because they were a big part of the economy. They were the ones investing in the stock market on margin. They were the ones that went bust when the 1921 crash happened. 29. No, no, 1929 crash, sorry. And all of a sudden, these people are bust. Guess what they can't do? They can't keep up their luxury lifestyle spending. And that created jobs back then. It created other revenues for people selling to them. So that starts the initial part of the chain reaction. Then you've got corporate structures that just make it worse with all that leverage. And then you've got foreign countries to one extent or another saying, hey, we can't buy enough food from, from you. And they got tariffs, and it's just it's causing problems that way. And all that happens, and then the government can't do anything about it because they're all thinking old school or that dogma of they're not thinking flat, the budget. completely thinking within the box, not even thinking about options that are out there and not being creative in any way, shape, or form. Had the economy been fundamentally sound in 1929, the effect of a great stock market crash may have been small. And that's his contention. And there, there's, there's so much more in the book to go into more detail on these, these items. I hope we've been able to make do it some level of justice. But this thing was a perfect storm. And when you read these kinds of books and you study this history, you will notice parallels to things that are happening in the modern world. And if you notice those things, maybe you can make a better decision than they did and maybe learn from those mistakes. And it maybe helps you understand what's going on today a little bit better. But there's just so much value. We're going to cover more books and more things like this in the past because it's just so valuable to go back and see that this has been done before. These This kind of attitude, this bubble mentality, it's common and you need to pay attention to it and just step back and detach a little bit from the situation and say, I'm going to step out of this and I'm going to look around and ask a question. Does this make sense? Is this person being rational? Is this the way we should be, be, be making decisions or not? And if you do that with, a, uh, with an eye on history, you won't be perfect. You're not going to be able to predict the future perfectly. But maybe well, you no can one avoid, can predict the future. Course, no one can. But for goodness sake, you can go, you know, I saw that person walk in front of a train and the train hit them and they died. Hmm. Maybe I shouldn't walk in front of that train. At least you can do that. You could still get hit by a car. But you've mitigated the risk of getting hit by the train anyway. So, um, you know, that that's really all I have for today. Is there anything you wanted to I just discuss? Been, we've been talking about it throughout the read. Uh, the parallels to the run-up of the stock market in the late 90s and the tech bubble crash and the financial crisis. Some of these quotes just really hit home as I was listening to this, at, talking about how uh, the banks became optimistic in, in the 1929 where they... They forgot what they were in business for, and uh, it's very similar to how the financial institutions back in the mid-2000s were updating and changing their procedures 
to take advantage of the optimism of the day and that those ninja loans are, are just thinking about it today they're absolutely terrifying thinking how banks back in just 10 15 years ago were writing loans and people didn't have to demonstrate that they one earned any money two had any assets because uh, houses can never go down in price right because real estate always goes up <laughs> so people always pay their mortgages yeah I, it's so it's just something that I, I think it's really important to understand history that there's a place for history it, it goes beyond the investing uh, yeah and, 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 and listening to us discuss this particular situation one might think hey these guys are just Debbie downers they just they're 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 only they're, they're, they're one of those people that are constantly bearish about everything and it couldn't be further from the truth I mean our our hope is that everything goes up and people we have good economy and we have a good market and we have higher interest rates for investors and we, we want all those things for investors to have so people can do better and have a better life the reality is is that there is such a thing as volatility and risk out there if for people in their financial world and if you ignore the fact that those risks even exist then you can have true disaster and that's the lesson of the day it's not it's not the the world is always coming to an end or the sky is falling that's absolutely couldn't be further from the truth and we're making no predictions about where we are at this moment in time and if you're listening to this uh, long after we've recorded it the lesson still remains you need to look around. You need to pay attention to the world around you and understand what's going on. And also pay attention to the risks out there. And if you pay attention to the risks, then maybe you can mitigate those risks. And that's the point. Invest so, on, purpo on purpose. Be purposeful. And uh, don't let emotion run the day. rule the day. 100%. And so that will wrap up. You know, everybody, thank you so much again for listening to our third episode. Um, if you need to contact Dan or me or our partner, Tom Stesich, uh, related to the podcast, you can find us at Fierce Fiduciary on social media. Um, and just uh, we're on Instagram, we're on Facebook, Twitter. Um, you can really find us just about anywhere. Uh, Dan personally is Dan Alberth, A-L-B-E-R-T-H. And I'm Brian C. Beasley on most social media, easy to find. So if you need have questions comments cheap shots just send them our way we're, we're greatly appreciative of your feedback and uh, would love to interact with you uh, that way there's also a facebook group that we discuss investing in financial planning provide some information there for free at uh, the group is called investing and financial planning for beginners and you can uh, join that private group if you'd like as well on again, Facebook. On Facebook. That's a Facebook private group. But again, thanks for listening. Until next time.